ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Once more, welcome to The Minefield, a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life or sometimes just deal with perennial issues that will simply not go away. Or if they do go away, in fashions that beg questions as well. Very What nice. am I talking about? Oh, well, you're Waleed. about to find out. Waleed, Waleed, I, I, love my name. I love Scott it. Scott Stevens is my cheerleader in the corner over there. Hello, Scott. Hey, that was really nicely done. I was worried you were just going to say, you know, perennial issues that don't go away. And then I was thinking, hang on. The very fact that this issue seems to have gone away, but maybe under circumstances that leave all sorts of moral questions uh, either on the table or off the table, uh, that's actually part of our problem. And then you anticipate mm. exactly my concern, and Indeed. I couldn't help myself. Would, I was about to say we don't often like to do anniversary shows, no. but I, then I thought, actually, that's not true. I feel like we do anniversary shows quite a bit, don't we? We haven't done that many. Okay. No. Well, this is an anniversary show of sorts. It is. Would you like to explain what sort? <laughs> I was wondering. You want me to. <laughs> All right. So yeah. something that we haven't thought or talked much about in public for about three years now, has recently come back on our national radar because in September, it was 10 years since the introduction of Operation Sovereign Borders. That introduction coincided with Tony Abbott's victory in the 2013 federal election, uh, the sweeping out of office of the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd-Labor governments, I think we need to talk in a second about the nature of that sweeping away because that's actually part of the story. I also think, by the way, sorry to, no, I, please. I mean to rain on your parade. I, I get the 10-year thing since Operation Sovereign Borders, but it's artificial to think that there was a moment where we didn't have Operation Sovereign Borders and then we did. Yeah, it's true. Because, of course, yeah, the central right. plank of it was introduced by Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister. So really what we're talking about is an evolution of asylum seeker policy in Australia that begins really, well, you could argue it begins with Keating um, and begins in earnest with Howard. And so it was in some ways a culmination that ended up reaching more or less bipartisan consensus. That's right. So I get the 10-year marker. I sort of, I, I get what you're doing there, but it, it's a bit misleading, really. Yeah, it is. Because really what we have to do is to reach back to 1992 uh, and the introduction of mandatory immigration detention uh, yeah. for anybody who comes uh, without valid visa. So it really starts that key plank of Australia's unwavering uh, border protection policy it really begins 1992. And then you're right, we have... John Howard's declaration. And in many respects, there was John Howard was the most rhetorically forceful of them all, but he wasn't the most strident of them all in terms of actual policy implementation. So you have the key idea of mandatory immigration detention from 1992. You have the key statement, we will decide who comes to this country in the manner in which they come. I mean, we can talk about the geopolitics of that statement as well. Uh, then you have uh, the phenomenon of labor seeming to lose control of Australia's borders uh, between 2007 and 2013. Which... And you have a rhetoric of from Kevin Rudd at the time of being tough but humane. Yes, that's right. That's which I right. think was a really interesting moment because that distilled the tensions and contradictions in all of this that ultimately proved to be unsustainable. Which, which, in other words, seemed to mean that if you were humane, then it left too big an incentive on the table. And then you have all the rhetoric about push factors versus pull factors. Then you have the honeypot effect, all sorts of things where if mm. you were humane in the slightest, then it gave undue incentives to the most nefarious actors of them all, namely the people smugglers. And then you have the final little sort of plank before the introduction of Operation Sovereign Borders, which was a desperate last-ditch effort on the part of Rudd in his second term as uh, prime minister, uh, which was the introduction of the refugee resettlement scheme. This 
I don't know how you want to describe it, Waleed, but this uh, deal that was brokered with PNG that in many respects was the harshest single agreement at any stage of refugee policy, refugee politics over the last two and a half decades, namely the immediate redirection of anybody intercepted at sea to PNG with no hope, no hope. This was the rhetoric. And uh, refugees who were resettled to PNG, there was no hope of them ever setting foot on the Australian And which, mainland. by the way, I would argue, was a, a mere extension of the logic of Julia Gillard's government's mm-hmm. ill-fated Malaysia solution. That's right. Do you remember that? Unfortunately. Which, which yes. was struck down ultimately by the High Court. That's right. In which the logic was the same, but it had an exception because I think, was it the first 800 or something? Mm. People who arrived by boat, they could be resettled, but after that, none. And so do you want to take your chances was the idea there. But that's kind of brushed over in the process. But I wonder if it should be because actually that was, I think, the first thing to set up the logic that there could be a total ban on anyone who arrives by boat ever coming to Australia. Mm. And all that happened really is the number was reduced from 800 to zero. Mm, That's right. Here's the conundrum, of course. In 2013, because the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd Labor government was regarded as being responsible for losing control. And again, it's so interesting, Willie, going back and revisiting the history. It's fascinating that we were talking so much about control, national sovereignty, resuming control, losing control, restraint, tightening of budgets. Remember, part of the coalition's devastating attack on the Labour government was that they lost control of the national finances in the wake of the global financial crisis. They lost control of the borders. They lost control of spending. They lost control of the implementation of various forms of economic incentive and stimuli in order to keep the Australian economy buoyant. They lost control. And so even if there was this desperate last-ditch attempt on the part of then Prime Minister Rudd to reassert a degree of control, Uh, through the refugee resettlement program. Um, Because he was responsible, deemed responsible for the problem in the first place, he could never get credit for steep decline in boat arrivals in the three months following the introduction of that program. So because the whole logic of the coalition, because the rhetoric was regain control, stop the boats, stop the waste, uh, axe the tax, uh, because everything was all about reduction, regaining control, Uh, then it just turned out to be an incredibly effective platform by which the mistakes, the errors of judgment, the lack of political will of the previous government was able to be sort of swept away and the nation's sense of itself and of the integrity of its borders could be healed. Now, also grown-up government, that was another one of those. It really was. It really was. The kids are in charge, they're incompetent. Could you just please put the adults in charge again? Mm. It was that sort of argument. You know, one of the other things that we actually forget here, I don't know how much we want to do this, but because the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd Labor government tended to trade quite liberally in moral language or the language of humanity or of humane treatment, One of the other planks, interestingly enough, of the coalition's rhetorical assault was there's moral rhetoric and then there is really morally courageous behavior. There is something immoral about allowing boats to come and people to die at sea. It may seem harsh, but it's more morally responsible to turn them back, to tow them back to ports, to detain Mm -hmm. them indefinitely, to... Uh, deter. And so here the morality of deterrence was also a huge part of this platform. And what I think we then see with the implementation of Operation Sovereign Borders, and remember, there were three crucial planks to the policy. One was boat turnbacks. Uh, We won't allow them to even reach Australian waters, much less Australian shore. The second was offshore processing, so they will never Refugees, asylum seekers, will never be processed in immigration detention facilities on the Australian mainland. And then the final was the plank of temporary uh, protection visas. Even if a refugee is deemed as being as having a legitimate claim, a rightful application, they will never be allowed to settle here. As soon as they're able to be sent back to their country of origin, they will be. 
The final part of that, though, was the militarization of Operation Sovereign Borders itself. Remember, we had Lieutenant General Angus Campbell fronting uh, press conferences. We had the veil of silence concerning on-water matters. Uh, We had the introduction of overtly military rhetoric surrounding the dealing with asylum seekers, with unauthorized maritime arrivals. The idea being that this was a national security emergency that needed to be brought under control and the only thing that can really bring it under control, and this is probably part of the adults back in the room, is through military measures, through a kind of military efficiency. Um, And hence it was possible within a matter of years for then Immigration Minister Scott Morrison to say, we stopped the boats. We stopped the boats. The reason we're talking about this now isn't just because of an artificial 10-year anniversary, although it's kind of interesting. The legacy of stopping the boats continues to be felt, I think, in our public life. Uh, One way that it is, is through the recent release of the Nixon review into the immigration visa system. Um, We can talk about that in just a second, but that has, I mean, one of the things that Christine Nixon, who conducted the review, one of the things that she pointed out is that through the uh, gaming of the visa application system and under its aegis, there have been extraordinary and profoundly troubling uh, instances of abuse, fraud, manipulation leading to human trafficking, sexual exploitation, um, sex slaves and money mules being brought under visas into the country, uh, the visa system being used to further organized crime. And at one particular point in the opening letter to the review, uh, Christine Nixon says that these things were allowed to flourish because, quote, seemingly higher law enforcement priorities, such as illicit drugs, tobacco, and unauthorized maritime arrivals, were allowed to take precedence. As in the focus on those things? As in the focus on those things, either detracted attention from or it led to inadequate attention to these other forms of abuses that were taking place through the uh, the official visa system itself. The yeah, other- it's a similar structure of argument, just to be clear. It's a similar structure of argument to what you get about how the US focus on the war on terror caused right. it to take its eye off other geopolitical problems Precisely. such as... The- Asia Pacific, the rise of China, so on, so on. So it's not so much that one caused the other. No, it's no. a it's a distraction sort of argument. And there is also the degree to which one particular argument, one particular issue, has a degree of political or domestic salience that maybe the other doesn't. There is a particular aversion to the idea of a lack of control of borders um, that does something unusual to Australia's sense of itself in the world, its sense of its own integrity as a nation. And again, I think this is part of where our conversation is going in a way that mere manipulation of the visa system, it doesn't cut in quite the same way. It doesn't have quite the same effect. The the other thing that I'll just mention briefly, and then I want to hand it over to you, uh, is that Australia really has exported the stop the boats policy approach. Um, And so we've seen with relatively low degrees of success, we've seen the UK adopt precisely the same approach. Uh, They tried the Rwanda solution. It was something that was then struck down by um, both European and British courts. So Rwanda solution, as in unauthorized refugees uh, coming across the strait, being immediately redirected from the UK mainland uh, to Rwanda for offshore processing and detention. Again, with much the same rhetoric, that they will not, they will not be able to set foot back on British soil. That's been contested and overturned by the courts. Most recently, they've explored the Ascension Island solution, a virtually uninhabited island in the South Atlantic. That is currently under judicial review. Not if you've seen this, Waleed, one of the most recent innovations to the Stop the Boats and offshore processing programs has been, have you seen the Bibby Stockholm barge? No, I haven't. So it's a barge with what look like naval containers on it. It's an offshore processing facility that houses 500 uh, asylum seekers, but it's at water. It's an artificial island. It's a barge to ensure that the UK government can stick with its pledge 
that asylum seekers will not set foot on the mainland. And it's a stopgap measure until some kind of form of offshore processing can be found. So on both of these grounds, stopping the boats has kind of roared back into public consciousness. And I think I'd like to suggest two things. One is, why was it so important that the boats were stopped? What did it actually do for us? Why was it a political necessity? Why did it dominate political debate for so long? In in what way did it offend the image of boat arrivals or of immigration detention? To what extent did that offend the Australian consciousness and why? And I guess the second question is, once we've answered that, is this still a settled matter? Should it still be a settled matter? Should we simply resign ourselves or even congratulate ourselves that it's no longer a political issue? It's no longer a topic of political debate. It's a policy that enjoys bipartisan approval. Is it simply settled now? Or is it time for us to resume under hopefully more sane circumstances uh, whether Australia is in fact derelict or internationally much less morally irresponsible in sticking by this particular policy? You know that's politically impossible, right? I presume you're not asking this as a political question. No, I'm not asking it as a political question. I, I, I regard it as a politically settled matter. Mm. because it's a democratically settled matter. Yeah. In other words, popular opinion is massively on the side of Operation Sovereign Borders. Uh, to the extent that it exists, really, uh, now, I think possibly the more accurate characterization would be that now it's not an issue that we think about because mm. we don't need to because there aren't boats turning up. So when I say need, I, I'm using it in a particular way that it doesn't become a politically relevant discussion because there aren't boats turning up. So in a way, if there are victims of the continuation of this policy, given that boats aren't turning up and we're no longer throwing people into offshore detention, right? those victims are abstract to us. They are theoretical to us mm. and therefore they don't, to, to use a phrase that's common in this area, engage our obligations. Mm. They don't, Interesting. It's, the problem doesn't enter our jurisdiction. So in a way, there's nothing for us to contemplate within the sort of political imagination we have or the political machinery we have for discussing it. I want to come back to the observation you made, which, with which I agree that this is politically settled or democratically settled. What does that mean? So what, what are the implications of that? When you say that, are you issuing a verdict on the Australian people? And if so, what is that verdict? Let me just say two quick things. Um, It is worth noting, just in the interest of complete accuracy, that when you say there are no current victims of Operation Sovereign Borders, uh, apart from them being sort of theoretical or potential, it is worth saying that while Australia removed the last known refugee from Nauru in June this year, uh, 11 were re-interned in Nauru in September. It's also worth pointing out that we know that between 75 and 80 persons for whom I believe Australia still does have uh, both legal and moral obligation continue to be in limbo in PNG. Mm. So so there are still people beyond the merely theoretical. Yeah, yeah. No, that's an important qualification. Yeah. There is also the further issue that, yes, theoretical, but imminent, the the idea that this is not a problem that's not going to reassert itself, namely uh, people in a state of desperation fleeing conflict, persecution, deprivation, or climate change, uh, the results of climate change, the idea that this isn't going to reassert itself, um, I think is probably fanciful. So yes, theoretical, uh, but I, I think you're right with your previous, it, it's abstract. We don't, we aren't seeing actual vision of it. So look, what you're asking is, given the fact that there's bipartisan approval, so bipartisan support of Operation Sovereign Borders and its associated planks, except for, interestingly enough, uh, temporary protection visas, which the Albanese government Mm. got rid of. The fact that it's democratically settled in the sense that people are in favor of this approach to border protection, is that the only game in town? 
In terms of domestic politics, I think it's unarguable. The idea that governments have lost government on the basis of an inability to keep control of the borders. I think that is unarguably potent. Um, How do you square the relationship, though, between democratic will and international obligation? There is no no relationship between them. I think one of the lessons of this whole period is that international obligation means very little to national polities. Mm, I think that's right. Right. And I would say that's probably true most places around the world when it comes down to it, right? That when the squeeze is on and there are what people perceive to be very strong domestic reasons for a particular policy, telling them that it violates some aspect of international law means almost exactly nothing. That's right. But I think the idea that it violates fundamental concepts of fairness... For instance, so you're wanting people in a state of destitution or who have thrown themselves into harm's way through a totally humanly understandable sense of aspiration, a longing for peace and, and civil stability and so on. You're wanting nations that are more populated than we are, that are less wealthy than we are, that don't have the infrastructure or that, quite frankly, whose infrastructure is under much greater strain than ours is. You want Mm. other nations to pick up fundamental, as I don't even mean international law, I mean fundamental human obligations to accord a degree of human consideration, concern, care, cultivation, nurturing, or at least assistance for those who who are in a condition of... Yeah, but you know how that argument ends up playing out, don't you? of course. Which is... No, of course we have an obligation and we meet those obligations, those even you want to call them moral obligations. We just do it via an orderly process and we give it to the people, not the people who show up. This is where the queue-jumping rhetoric becomes relevant, right? But we give it to the people who you might be forgetting who are in refugee camps on the other side of the world waiting for processing, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, when I said domestic polities don't care about the judgment of international law, I mean on things like you know, non-refoulement or... That's right. Even just the idea that once someone turns up, they are lawful and there's an international obligation to take them. Once you crunch that through the policy machine and you look at the consequences of applying that policy and a domestic population sees the consequences as being effectively limitless numbers coming and having a claim on entry that we cannot deny, then there comes a point at which people say, no, stuff international law. Mm. But that only sits alongside a claim that, well, we are, it's not like we're doing nothing. We're just doing what can reasonably be expected of us. We take more refugees per capita than anyone else, which of course is not true in an absolute sense. It's just true in a formal legalistic sense because, I mean, have you ever been to Lebanon? (laughs) I remember being in Lebanon when there were so many Syrian refugees coming across the border and it's all unofficial, right? So we can say, well, we take more refugees in Lebanon. It's like, well, yeah, except that go to Lebanon and look around and see all the refugees. that There's a country of, what was it, about 4 million at the time who had about a million Syrians coming. Mm. So that's 25% of the population. It caused all sorts of tensions within Lebanon, including rhetoric that you could properly regard as being close to Hansenite, right, within Lebanon about Syrians. And, And that feeds back into the argument that the Australian people, I think, would find persuasive, which is, well, it can't just be you know, the application of an obligation in an absolute sense. It has to be limited in some way. And once it's limited in some way, well, who are you to say that this limit is better than that one? Mm. You know, this this was the whole give me a number argument, right? How many people are you prepared to take before you will say we can't take any more? Mm. And I was always on the other side of this debate, I should declare, as in I was quite vocal and persistent critic of asylum seeker policy in Australia, But I have to concede that was a question that people on my side of the argument could never really answer. You're right. And can I say, Willie, that's the result of framing the debate in moral terms, which is ironic. I mean, because not only does it allow, say, Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison to use the kind of the moral language of tough love, if you like, 
in order to frame their response. But it also means that you have no way of morally adjudicating, for instance, the tension between the preservation of national identity, of national community, preserving multicultural stability and cohesion, and one's seemingly limitless obligation to those in a state of deprivation, persecution, need. Which, which was always part of the Howard government's argument. If you want multiculturalism and you want immigration in Australia and you want it to be stable and accepted, you have to give the Australian people the confidence that the border is under control and that it is being well administered. If you don't have that sense and there is this sense that people are just turning up and we cannot do anything about that or we have no control over that situation, then what will suffer is the multicultural pact in Australia. Mm. Uh, the subsequent evidence of that became a place like Germany. Right? So that's the argument. Now, people can buy or not buy that argument. I have some concerns with that argument, particularly in the context of the what I saw anyway is the Howard government's persistent undermining of multiculturalism. That's right. Although they would say we don't like multiculturalism, but we do like immigration, and the argument becomes nuanced from there. But I, you know, I understand. So I had some problems with that argument, but that was nonetheless the argument. And I, again, I have to concede there is a grain of truth in it, in that Australians are generally speaking pro-migration, but what they are not is pro-unlimited migration or uncontrolled migration. Yeah. That is true, whether you like that or not. That is a fact. And so in some ways, this becomes an argument over ideals and crude pragmatism. The problem is, within the crude pragmatism, a whole lot of very dark and nefarious arguments and concepts I would consider yeah. would be smuggled in. I agree. Can I propose, though, three very brief last considerations, and I want to get to our guest, because I, I do yep. think there are three kind of ameliorating factors that make this an important conversation to be had. The first is, there is something really confronting I believe, about Christine Nixon's review into the visa onshore processing system <laughs> that destroys the idea of, as if it needed further undermining, the idea of an orderly queue and what people just need is to have a little bit more patience to submit their visa application and everything will be dealt with in good time. Uh, the delays the number of people that are in limbo, the under-resourcing up until, I, I should say, Labor's pledge to properly financially resource the various stages of the visa application program to try to not just give greater scrutiny to those who are, uh, say, visa consultants, but also to make sure that those who are applying for visas, uh, their applications and their appeals are dealt with swiftly and with proper legal representation. All of those funding announcements have been absolutely vital. Um, but the idea of an orderly migration system and an orderly queue, we, we really, I think, should just be a little bit more grown up about that. And there are findings in the Nixon review that I think really should trouble anybody who has been following refugee politics uh, for the last 20 years, including the fact that when it comes to sex traffickers, human traffickers, organized crime, I'm sorry, people smugglers are small beer in comparison yep. to some of these genuinely nefarious actors who have been running rampant within Australia's visa, official visa application system. So I think that's one thing that, okay, I, I think there's something there. Secondly, you might disagree with this. Australia's approach to unannounced maritime arrivals, irregular maritime arrivals, boat people, has been incubated, I think, in two particular kilns. I'm mixing my metaphor there. It's been forged in two particular... Yep. Okay. One was the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Yep. So there was a way in which refugees, boats possibly bearing with them terrorists, there was a particular way in which that was politicized. People who had drowned their own kids. People who drowned their own kids. They don't have a fundamental attachment to human life the way that we do, merchants of death, and so on and so on. And then you have the control rhetoric of the early 2010s. And it's just interesting, Willie, to revisit the control rhetoric, knowing that Brexit is just around the corner and knowing that Trump is just around the corner. So we all... Sorry, and that immigration is a big part of both, but especially Brexit. Absolutely right. In other words, mm. there are... 
historical, geopolitical, and sociopolitical contingencies that frame, I believe, the crucial moments in which the underlying ideas of border absolutism, of immigration absolutism, they're cultural contingencies that I, I'm wondering if now that we are some extent outside of those contingent circumstances, whether there is a capacity to review something of the harshness with mm-hmm. which the immigration challenge was met in the first place. Are we in a fundamentally different time in which the language of control and the language of terror doesn't have the same purchase on us? And the final thing that I would just flag before we move on to our guest, there is an undeniable good associated with processing facilities, mandatory detention facilities being vacant. There is a fundamental good that has been achieved in people being removed from those facilities after the psychological devastation, the self-harm, the existential hopelessness and despair that was incubated in those facilities. I'm sure you remember because we spoke with Rob Mann at around the time that he was coming around to precisely this position. I'm sure you remember back in 2017, Frank Brennan, Rob Mann, John Menadou, all of whom have been fierce, fierce advocates for a more humane approach to migration and Australia's treatment of asylum seekers, agreeing that for the sake of getting those tortured souls out of those facilities, we need to make an agreement that offshore processing, this is just the price we need to pay to save these souls. Yep. That was no small political achievement, I think, rescuing people from torment. And I wouldn't want anybody listening to this to think that we're flirting with ideas that could yield or necessarily lead to a resumption of that kind of terror, of that kind of horror. But I just wonder if other things aren't at play that make this uh, the kind of issue that we are mature enough to revisit in a manner that's both politically responsible and morally defensible. All right, we have a guest. Our guest is Kim Hoon. He's senior lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. He's also deputy director of the Humanities Research Center at Australian National University. He's also the author, and I'm sorry to kind of shoot the fireworks like this, Kim. He's also the author of what I regard as being really one of the most remarkable accounts of Australia's refugee politics of the last 30 years. It is titled Australia's Refugee Politics of the 21st Century, Stop the Boats. Kim, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Uh, Yuma, great to be here with you both, and uh, thanks for those kind comments. And you can read uh, the best parts of the book on the ABC uh, Religion and Ethics website, of course, Scott. Uh, That's right, I know, I know. I didn't even ask him to say that. I mean, you've just immediately become my favourite person in this world. Well, Kim, since you're doing plugs, why don't you just take control of the show and (laughs) say whatever whatever you want? I mean, you've heard us. What do you want to say? Um, Yeah, I thought I might start off by saying that I think there is something distinctive about the last 10 years and, and what I call the stop the boats era. Of course, it um, it evolves out of a longer period of Australian sort of border uh, security. You, you pick up rightly, I think, that the big move was in July 2013 when Rudd signed the, a very, very quick uh, sort of pillow stop agreement with Papua New Guinea, the Refugee Resettlement Agreement. And that was distinctive and made Australia distinctive in the world with respect to these sort of issues, because it said, regardless of how deserving you are, regardless of how needy or persecuted entrepreneurial you are, if you come here by boat without a visa, then you will never live in Australia. So that, that's a big deal for me. That sets a new era. And, and after that, of course, Abbott wins uh, the 2013 election. And then he sets forth to militarise immigration in Australia like never before too. Remember, I I live right next to the immigration department, the main building in Belcon and ACT. Everyone's email, this is just a small thing, but it's symptomatic. Everyone's email addresses and websites went from imi to border.gov.au. That's part of that militarisation. It's just symptomatic of it. And in the public sphere, in the way we discuss these things or not discuss them, we went from a great deal of chatter in the first part of the 21st century to those three-word slogans, particularly stop the boats, and now a silence and contentment. 
that we don't want to hear about those people. We don't hear about the legal cases. We don't want to see them and we don't want to see their protests in particular. But I think you point out too, rightly, that that silence, that contentment with that also opens up possibilities for reconfiguring how we understand refugees and belonging in Australia today. What possibilities? <laughs> well, <laughs> the possibilities I really have reflected upon and they give me some, I mean, this is a difficult topic for me. I've been teaching it for 20 years, but I should say also I'm, I'm a refugee and a boat person myself, a Vietnamese refugee. So I do look for, for measured and realistic hope. And my sense is that things as silent as they are on this topic, aren't settled. That there's a huge progressive change in terms of how we belong, uh, in terms of how we understand who is normal, who is legitimate, and who matters in Australia. The, the big critique of belonging in Australia, firstly from feminism and the Me Too movement, how, would you, how else would you characterise uh, the absolutist approach to border control in Australia? That is more extreme. I mean, Antonio Guterres, who's now uh, the head of the UN, called it strange, strange and very strange and a sort of a social and psychological issue for Australians. So this is something distinctive then. What's distinctive about it? It's about coercive control. And the feminists understand that. And the people who, who understand domestic violence understand that better than anyone. Coercive control. And more than anything, in a family context... Uh, is a signifier of violence, is coercive control, and similarly on our, our borders too. So I think that the feminist critique of belonging in Australia is very powerful. Kim, can, I, sorry, that- can I ask you at that point though, I mean, one of the horrible and wonderful things about revisiting this decade through your articles, through your book, has been remembering really powerfully things that quite frankly I would sooner never remember. The gender politics in the transition from Gillard to Abbott, skipping over the second Rudd term, the gender politics were horrible. Do you think, though, that the reassertion of control that Abbott promised, I know that there was a kind of masculine undertone, but do you think it was more than an undertone? Oh, I think it was totally open. He's, he wears the bulgy smugglers. He's a firefighter. He does ultra triathlons, you know. People were, were drawn to that. I was actually on paternity leave when, in 2013, and I thought, I studied Machiavelli too. He talks about virtue, the importance right. of virtue right. and, and uh, prowess, right? But in any case, I think the feminist um, look at border security is a very urgent one, but it also points to a different time and a different place that we've reached in terms of belonging. I know everyone cites the Matildas this year, uh, but the, the Matildas, I think, were huge for me because sport is... I know you two love talking about sport, but sport is such uh, a no, signifier. No, no, I love talking about sport. Scott refuses to <laughs> talk about sport. I, I tolerate it and try to fake it. <laughs> well, this is sport and politics, but I think they're huge for Australian identity and belonging. Remember, they do the love heart symbol too often when they score goals. So it's not just women. It's there's a queerness about it and a, and a shaking up of ideas of how we identify and how we belong in Australia. And, and as I said, sport's so important to that. And I think their success, suddenly 4 million people are watching their game. I watched it with my son. I've never hugged him so much since he was a baby, you know. I, I think what that points towards is that there has been a change that's been bubbling away already in terms of whether we still want this hyper-masculinized, coercive uh, approach to how we control our societies and our borders. And maybe we're starting to see some cracks and possibilities open up there. And also there's a First Nations idea of belonging that I think has really changed us and given us a sense of, a different sense of identity and belonging to land uh, and to country and to water too. No, a different really sense of the sovereignty too. of the waterways. That's a huge deal. I'm uh, Vietnamese of descent and, and our idea of country is, the word for country is nuke, which means water. So we, we view water as sustaining us, as giving us life. Whereas the continent-centric type, many Australians, including me to an extent too, think that it's all about the land and the, the water is a threatening place where threatening people come. But, but the water is life-enriching and the water is an avenue for connecting with others according to Pacifica people and many others too. And, and maybe we do well to incorporate some of that perspective and maybe we are already. So, Kim, I think it's a fascinating analysis and I could not disagree more with yeah. it. Um, <laughs> I knew this was coming. I mean, it's not that I think what you're saying is 
incorrect, like the observations you're making aren't, aren't incorrect. There's definitely been a lot of cultural change. There is a certain maelstrom in the notion of belonging and Australianness and so on. But I would have two problems. Oh, actually, I can think of probably three off the top of my head that I have, and you can address them by all means. One is the logical extension of what you're arguing seems to be that our attitude to boat arrivals is going to be completely changed because of feminist and queer political ideas of belonging. I just don't think that describes the Australian electorate at all. Two is um, the idea of stopping the boats being a hyper-masculine thing. Well, that might be true insofar as it goes, but over the journey, what I think we've seen is the end conclusion, the same end conclusion being that we should do whatever it takes more or less to stop boats coming, simply being serviced by whatever argument works in the moment or in the day. So in the early 2000s, it was a war on terror argument. These people could be terrorists, etc. Now, this was this description of these people, the children overboard affair was just a fabrication that didn't even happen. You could have in that moment mounted the argument, you know, once this war on terror thing's over or once this war on terror thing is less salient, then there might be a crack in the national psyche that we can... But no, what happens is it simply shifts to something else. Even when... Kevin Rudd takes power and he wants to distance himself from the kind of meanness of the Howard government and do things like the apology to the stolen generations in Parliament, sign Kyoto or ratify Kyoto, all this sort of stuff. Even when he wants to do that, he has to preserve some version of the policy and he can't say, I want to be humane. He has to say, I want to be tough and humane. And the thing then falls apart and then he eventually ends up reimposing it. So if it's true that the Abbott era was a masculine, hyper-masculine era and a hyper-masculine form of government, don't forget that fell apart very quickly too. Mm. But the policy around operations of sovereign borders, that didn't. That survived beyond that. That survived beyond the gender wars of, of Gillard and, and Abbott. So all that would happen is simply the new narrative. A, a new narrative would be found. And in this moment, I think it's a singularly bad moment for playing on immigration because, and this is my third point, we're in a cost of living crisis where people are already very suspicious even of regulated legal immigration because they look around and they go, well, we can't afford houses and now we're going to bring in half a million people and where are they going to live? And if they're going to find places to live, where am I going to live? And you want to add boats to that mix or you want to add a policy that might invite that? I think the policy change might be accepted until a boat turns up and then it'll just be on again. I don't see how you get around this problem of narrative shifting, however theoretically elegant the observations about changes in notions of belonging in parts of Australian society might be, once it meets the cold hard facts of politics, I I don't see the crack of light that you see. So um, tell me why I'm wrong there, Kim. I'm, I'd actually really love to hear yeah, your Yeah, well, your it's, it's, not, it's not that black and white for me, Walid. I, I don't think you're wrong. I'm not wrong or right about these things, but I'm looking for different possibilities and opportunities that are also... Um, not fanciful and realistic. I think where these elegant... I'm, I'm a fan of elegance too, to be honest. I'm trying harder to be elegant and also to be powerful and persuasive at the same time. You're, you're, everything's elegant about you, Kim. I've got no, no doubt about that. <laughs> no, you should see what I'm wearing. Anyway, the... Um, uh, I think th there's an interesting term that's really on the cutting edge of border politics, I think, and politics more generally, of front lash. I don't know if you mm, folks have come mm. across it, but I, I think we'd more likely than not plot along except for the possibility, and it's a very real one, I think, of a crisis with respect to irregular migration that would likely result because of climate change. And people on what might be the left of border politics try to learn some lessons from what the backlash far right-wingers and uh, lunar right have achieved in places like the US through Trumpism and also achieved earlier through neoliberalism, there's a great line from Milton Friedman uh, about taking advantage of crisis. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stuff this up. But that at a time of crisis, you have to put in place ideas and they're just lying around. And his ideas, and the far right have taken this up. And who would have thought 10 years ago that some of the ideas that Trump has put into place during his presidency and really through other Republicans uh, who've held positions of power since would have ever seen the light of day. But they were lying around 
when a crisis happens. So I think progressive voices, I think maybe would be able to take advantage of that. I'm not necessarily even promoting it. I, my book is very fair and my teaching is very fair, I should say. But if we're going to talk about how these ideas and these different ideas of belonging might eventuate into policies on our borders, it would be through activism. It's a long, hard fight. I'm not mm. saying that we're almost there on any of these policies. I'm not even totally sure how they would eventuate. But I also think that the issue is not settled and there are many possibilities that might come about through crises and that there should be, even if you're just interested in pluralism, a few different ideas lying around and that it shouldn't just be absolute border control. Mm. Can I just raise, I think both of you are entirely right. And that's what's sort of glorious about this particular conversation. Let me add one more curveball, maybe. What did we want, we the Australian people, we the demos, what did we want when we wanted the problem of boat arrivals to go away? Did we want the problem to go away or did we want it simply no longer to be our problem? That's sort of first answer. Did we not so much want it to go away as much as we just didn't want to see it anymore? And there was something horrible, wasn't there, about the image of people being actively used as a means of deterrent by means of their suffering in immigration detention. Even if we accepted the, the political effectiveness of unremittingly harsh deterrence, there was nonetheless something horrible about having to see it. There was something horrible about having to see uh, boats crashed, upended, corpses on the shore. There was something horrible about having to see it. Did we want the problem to go away or did we simply no longer want to have to be confronted by it? Did we no longer want to have to see it? And it strikes me that on almost every level, it's that we didn't want to be confronted by it. We just didn't want to, yes, the problem is going to exist someplace. Maybe it's no longer going to be our problem. Maybe there are going to be impersonal, non-democratic mechanisms that can be used to solve that problem on other people's shores. But we simply don't want to be confronted by it. And J.M. Kutsia, to my mind, quite convincingly, said that Australia's sense of its own decency was predicated on the idea that the only way that we could reconcile our sense of decency and fairness as a nation with the cruelty and the terror that we were inflicting on the bodies of others was by no longer having to see what it was that we were doing. If we then reach the point where we, democratically speaking, grow up a bit and realize that this is a problem and that we are co-implicated in the existence of that problem and that it's a problem that all of us all of us as human beings are going to have to grapple with, namely the care and the preservations of lives who are going to be displaced by either violence or climate change. And surely there comes a point where, provided we no longer re-enter the nightmare of immigration detention, of suffering bodies behind barbed wire, can we reach the point where we reconcile ourselves, if you like, with what it is that we're going to have to see, what we're going to have to confront? In other words, this kind of ocular aversion can be dealt with so that we resume a sense of both international responsibility and that more fundamental sense of domestic decency? Um, yeah, what a question. I, I think your, your sentiments are right. I mean, refugees, irregular migration are a part of living in a globalised world. That's it. I think we need to take a chill pill on a lot of this and, and that would benefit us all uh, because there's no benefit in being anxious. There's no benefit in being afraid, particularly of things that have never been an existential threat, as difficult they are for those people on the move themselves and as difficult as it can be to, to bring in lots of different types of people. It's never been an existential threat and it's part of being a globalised world that we push as Australians in a liberal democracy and which we benefit from also. And, and we can probably deal with some of those awful sights and those images if we also see some of the very positive ones and we have good policies in place that resettle uh, irregular migrants where they are refugees, there's often programs that are working away, resettle them in places that are economically advantageous mm. to Australia in the regions. If you take care of people, they'll take care of you, by and large, it is a fair rule when it comes to um, irregular migration. Uh, and also if we see, if we hear some more positive stories instead of the absolutely awful negative ones and the rhetoric around 
let's not put sugar on the table and, and that sort of thing, you know? So it's really difficult. It's a big turnaround. I can understand why people want the security that comes with silence and just distancing uh, people on the move. But it's more than just the people who, the dozens or so people who come try to get to Australia that we then offshore. It's through Australia's border practices. It's not like people have stopped being persecuted mm. and being mm. displaced. Right. It's more than ever, if anything. But the Rohingya are a good example. Um, throughout Southeast Asia, Countries like Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia have implemented stop the boats policies, sometimes at the behest and funding of Australia. And what it's meant for the Rohingya is that, sure, less of them are on boats. So we've got to take this seriously. Less of them are on boats, probably less die at sea. But where do they end up? The biggest refugee camp in the world, Cox's Bazaar, in Bangladesh, one of the poorest countries in the world. And the big push there is to move them to Basanchar, a sealed island, a sealed island. And the UN's okayed that because the options are so poor for these people. So yeah. when we push them away, their suffering continues. In some ways, it's exacerbated, but it's closer to the source. And they're an interesting example too, because you would say, I think there's a reasonable argument to say, they're closer to Myanmar and Rohingya will be able to get home someday, but they're not going to. In all likelihood, you want to be realistic, that's not going to happen. So, so our border policies, as much as we push people away, it doesn't in any way solve the problem. And arguably, if you had a reasonable a realistic and a broad outlook, it probably exacerbates a problem. Yeah, the only problem is if you conceive of the problem as infinite and it's, you know, effectively infinite, I suppose, even if not technically so, the counter-argument goes, well, that's going to happen anyway. At a certain point, that's going to happen anyway and there's nothing we can do about that. In the absence of all the things that kind of got gestured towards but never really implemented, like, you know, regional solution, etc., it probably needs actually to be a global solution. And so here you run into, my oh God, I'm, you know, I've said this so many times on the show on so many different issues, the old structural contradiction between the Westphalian system and mm, the true. nature of a globalised world. Mm. That Westphalian states, nation states acting on their own, coming up with policies that even attempt to balance obligations internationally with something like the national interest can never solve problems like this because mm. there is always going to be an argument that has a, a tragic inevitability about it in these sorts of cases. Yeah, I, yeah I've often wrestled with those questions mm. myself, Walid. But I, I had an insight on this uh, the other day. I'm also a presenter on ABC Radio Canberra, and I've been following a and hanging out with a rough sleeper, and I've got an expert, a social worker, who helps people who sleep on the streets. And we had him on uh, deliberately just after school pickup, just after three, it's because I wanted to ask him the question that so many kids ask, what should we do when we see someone mm, mm. Who's, who's rough sleeping and in need? Should we give them money? How should we give them money? We can't solve the entire problem. Uh, what if they use that money wrongly? And he was very powerful. Uh, he said, give what you can. Give what you can. So I wonder, mm. in Australia, are we giving what we can and we can talk about all the different little policies, but they're significant, actually. The policy mm. initiatives and things that are going on, we are definitely not giving what we can. Kim, we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Um, I'd really love to keep going with this, actually. Alas, time is not infinitely elastic for us. Thanks so much for coming in. It's been really... Uh, Scott was right to say he was very excited to have you on and that you're absolutely the right person to have a chat to about it. So really appreciate your time and your efforts. It's been great. Thanks very much. Kim Hun, Senior Lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.